I didn't hear anybody laughing at that. Pretty serious stuff. We pray for us and we'll dig in on this 2nd of July. God, thank you for this time we have together. We thank you for your word, which tells us things we would not know otherwise. And this morning we're going to be into some uh, fun, useful, but also serious business as we talk about what it is that the Holy Spirit does uh, to, to gather people from the world, to reach them, and uh, what our part in, in that might be. So we pray that you would be here, that you would teach us, that you would ins inspire us, uh, and if there's conviction or judgment that's needed, that you would lay it on us. Lord, help us to be serious about the business that you're about. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, well, welcome, people. Uh, last week, from John's Gospel, we used the uh, passage where Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he's teaching them about the, the Holy Spirit. And uh, what we mean that we talked about last week, we discovered that the Holy Spirit is actually a person. He's not just a person, he's a divine person. Uh, he's a discreet person who loves to shine a light on Jesus. Um, and then he's a dynamic person who is able to power us through things that also shines light on Jesus. So today I want to zero in on a few verses that we looked at last week and kind of glossed over. Uh, and uh, you might not be surprised that there's an element of conviction and judgment that pops up here. And that's kind of why I used the sentencing of Alex Burdock for the murder of his wife and son not that, not, not that long ago. Uh, my daughter Amy, down in D.C., has two dogs. Here they are. Both are rescue critters. The first one, the smallest one on the left, named Blossom, uh, has some mental health issues. So after a time, they thought it might be wise to get a second dog for company. Uh, we weren't sure how that was going to work out for them, but it did work out. The second dog is named Woody. Um, he loves the outdoors. He loves to go on walks. Actually, he doesn't love to go on walks. He loves to go on out, I mean, seriously, runs. Uh, and thankfully, Greg, my son-in-law, is always prepping for some kind of a 5K, 10K, or marathon, so he's always up for a run. So when Woody gets the need to a run, he just follows Greg all over the house until he just wears him down, and then they go on a run. Uh, he's all about the run. I call him the Hound of the Obersons. And I want to speak to you today about uh, the Hound of Heaven, the Holy Spirit. And I mean absolutely no disrespect to the Spirit. There was actually a poem written in the 1800s called The Hound of Heaven. Uh, it was by a guy named Francis Thompson. Francis Thompson entered medical school at the age of 18 because his father wanted him to be a doctor. Francis' dream, however, was to be a writer and a poet. You can imagine how that, how that went over with Dad. So he hung in there from 18 to the age of 26 and finally dropped out of medical school, left his family, and sought success in London. Uh, uh, he was trying to, try to be a writer. But times were tough, and he became homeless and addicted to opium. After two years on the streets, he was actually discovered by a couple who were editors of a magazine he has actually submitted some poems to for possible publication. They took him into the, their home, they helped him recover from the addiction, and they arranged the publication of his first book of poems. 
Turns out critics absolutely adored it. And The Hound of Heaven was one of those poems. He became quite popular until he died at the age of 47 of tuberculosis. The 182 lines of The Hound of Heaven speak about how he ran from God and how God was always just patient and faithful to draw him back in. That persistence of God called, allowed him to call the Holy Spirit the Hound of Heaven. And that's relevant to what we're going to focus on today. Last week we looked at several verses in John chapter 15 and 16 that spoke about the Holy Spirit in general. But I'm going to look at something more specific, which is how the Holy Spirit works in particular to draw people to him, to, to Jesus. Um, and that the fact that uh, they have a need and that the need is fully met in Jesus Christ. The one who's doing the convincing here is actually the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who basically comes along and says, I think there's something wrong with you. And I think you might need to do something about that something wrong with you. So we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at a few verses in particular. Get in chapter 16, verse 5, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So, first of all, when it comes to how the Holy Spirit of God works in this world, his necessity is really undeniable. These disciples are going to need him. They're going to need the Spirit in the days ahead. You notice what Jesus said, sorrow has filled your heart. I told you these things, and sorrow has filled your heart. The idea here is that you guys are feeling something, I get it, that so deeply fills you up. You can't fit anything else in. So imagine pouring water into a glass to the very brim, completely filling it, right? So the idea is that the anxiety that these disciples are experiencing has completely taken over their thought process, completely taken over their emotions. They really can't think about anything other and Jesus leaving. Why? Because Jesus said he's going. Their best friend is leaving them. The one who has healed their families, the one who has calmed the storms, the one who's turned water into wine, the one who gave them the amazing, miraculous free lunch up in Galilee, the one who said, hey, go get that fish, and inside you'll find a coin. You can use that to pay the IRS this year. Jesus was very handy guy to have around. But he's gone. And besides all that, they loved them. And here's the big idea that they don't understand. They have a hope that Jews had back in that day that is being expunged as Jesus is talking. Why are the disciples a bit unhinged? Well, Jews living 2,000 years ago, in and around Israel, most had some idea of kind of what was going to happen when the Messiah would show up. They had been taught that there would be kind of a four-stage process and they expected that this to happen around the Messiah's arrival. And they expected it to happen around Jesus' Messiah because they were pretty convinced at this point 
that he's Messiah. Number one, here's what they thought. That before the Messiah actually shows up on planet Earth, there's going to be a, a period of, up, of upheaval, a period of turmoil in the land. They saw that having been fulfilled by the Roman invasion, conquering of their land. Number two, prior to the Messiah's arrival, some Elijah-like prophet, forerunner, is going to come on the scene announcing the coming of the Messiah. That was to them John the Baptist. That's why I love so many people were interested in what John the Baptist was doing and all that kind of stuff. Number three, the Messiah would then show up. And when he arrived, he would defeat his enemies. He would establish his kingdom. And number four, that would allow scattered Jews from all over the world who'd been displaced would come around and return to Israel and Jerusalem would be established in peace. That was their plan. That was their thinking of what was going to happen. Disciples believed they were somewhere between stage two and three. John the Baptist had come. The Messiah seems to have come. The next thing would be the setting up of the kingdom. Yippee-i-o-ki-yay, right? But Jesus said, wait a minute. I'm not going to set the kingdom up right now. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm not staying. So this did not compute to them. It didn't make any sense. So sorrow has filled their hearts. This is not what they have expected. Here's what I want you to notice. The disciples are focusing in on what they're about to lose rather than what they're about to gain. They're so bummed out, so filled with sorrow because Jesus said he's going, that they're not even registering what he's telling them in terms of what they're going to receive. Yeah, the Spirit, the, the, the Helper is coming. He's going to be just like me. He's going to do everything and be as good as I was. He's actually going to be to your advantage because I'm going to be able to, he's going to be able to infiltrate each one of you and ultimately reach out through you to, to reach other believers. How many times do you meet people who kind of do the same thing? They come focused on what they've lost rather than focus on what they could be gaining. I've met a lot of unbelievers who said, well, I can't give my life to Christ. I might lose my friends. Okay, but you're going to gain a friend who's closer than a brother. I can't give my life to Christ. I might lose my old life. Yeah, but you'll gain eternal life, a brand new life. Think about what you're gaining. Some of you guys might have heard of a fellow by the name of Jim Elliott, the legendary missionary who was uh, martyred by the Alca Indians in Ecuador. Probably the most famous thing he ever said was a simple sentence, and it goes like this. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So Jesus tells his guys, I'm leaving. But the Holy Spirit, the helper, is going to come and he will stay with you forever. By the way, if you do lose something, I believe God's in the business of replacing it with something better. You may not know it at the time, but Jesus put it this way. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my namesake, will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. These disciples are going to need this spirit desperately in the days to come to mitigate against the sorrow that they're now experiencing. The need for the spirit is undeniable for another reason. The task at hand is enormous. Right before Jesus leaves, he's going to say, Go into all the what? Go into all the world. These disciples have got to be thinking, uh-oh, we never thought about going into all the world and doing what? Yeah, preaching the gospel. Yeah, but who? To every creature. 
to every creature. That's a ginormous task. There's just 11 of us, they're thinking. Let me put it another way. It really is an impossible task. It's like me telling you if you're standing on the deck next to a sailboat, here's what I want you to do. I want you to start blowing your breath into the sails of that sailboat and make that thing sail. You could do that for 20 years. That sailboat ain't going nowhere, right? You don't have what it takes to make that thing go. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, every creature. Listen, they did not have what it takes to preach the gospel to every creature. Listen, they don't have what it takes on their own, that is. But that's the point I'm leaving. Another one is coming. Jesus is leaving, but another one's coming. He's going to fill the bill. He has a job to do through these disciples. Sounds impossible. And it would be without the Spirit. But with the Spirit, hmm, he makes what looks impossible possible. Another thing, the Spirit's activity is undeniable. I want you to see that his activity in the world is undeniable, right? It says this, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. If you were to take the word convict and simply replace it with the word convince, that would be another way of looking at this verse. He's going to convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Then Jesus explains this in the next three verses. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. I'll kind of get into that a little bit. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judge. Now, we just breezed over those verses last week. So I want to unpack them a little bit for you today. Because right there, I think, is the kernel of the activity that the Spirit of God has in our unbelieving world. So first thing he does is convict the world of sin. Another way of putting this, the Holy Spirit will convince people that they're sinners. Now, why would he need to do that? Simple. No one's ever going to look for a Savior until they think they need one. And the only people that think they need a Savior are people who have figured out that they're sinners. They have to be convinced that they need help. Uh Uh-oh, I think I'm a sinner who needs saving. So the Spirit will convince people of their need for a Savior by convincing them that they have a sin issue. Now, I've discovered most people actually do need convincing of that because most people don't readily admit that they're sinners. In fact, they don't even like the term sin. They hate the word. By and large, the world denies sin even exists. I'm not, I'm not a sinner. I, I, I might have some hang-ups. I might have some issues. I'm, I, might, I, might, I might have anger issues, but I'm Irish, so it's okay. But I don't have sin. Or they will blame their behavior on something or someone else, like their environment. You know, I am the way I am because when I was five years old, my parents made me eat spinach, and I've never been the same since, right? Never been the same since. Or there's shifting of blame, right? Or they want to blame their genes. I don't mean their Levi's. I'm talking about their genetics. I have a propensity to this. I have a propensity to that. It's not my choice. It's the way God made me. They'll even go so far as to blame God for it. There's an enormous amount of blame shifting, and it takes the Holy Spirit to convince people of their need by convincing them that they are a sinful person. I had a small group one time uh, at another church, I uh, just started going there, and this group of uh, unbelievers, they just started coming to the church. They were a small group just learning how the church functioned, and they all kind of liked each other. So they decided after the end of the orientation of the church for a few weeks, they decided they all wanted to stay together and be in a small group. Uh, 
And so the church said, hey, would you, would you take this, this group on? They're, they're kind of crazy. Uh, we walked them through the book of Romans. I have no idea why we started there, but uh, was, what, what, here's what happened. It was totally amazing to see people who all just really wanted, their goal was to just hang out together as friends, not to get saved. They, didn't, we're not, they were not interested in that. They just wanted to be buddies. But as we went through the book of Romans, we just said, here's what we're going to do. We read it, and we see if we understand it. The stuff we don't understand, we'll put aside. The stuff we do understand, let's see if we can figure out how to make that make sense to us. So they all wanted to be friends, but as we went through, one by one by one, they also began to realize not only were they friends, but they were sinners too. And one by one, they all came to faith in Christ. So in between that time we started, within a year, all of them had gotten baptized in faith in Christ. Some of those people were actually dealing with something I did not know. One couple, uh, they were up in Canada. They were married. He had an affair. And to get away from the, the ex-affair person, they moved down here. And they were planning on probably separating and getting a divorce. They're now missionaries up in Canada. <laughs> it's amazing what God has done. So anyway, the problem is this. We're not the ones that are supposed to convict people of sin. That's the conviction that brings is brought by the Holy Spirit. That's not our job. It's the Holy Spirit's job. Your job isn't to convict people that they're sinners. And if you try to do that, my experience is this. All you're going to do is result in somebody telling you that you're just a person who condemns people, not someone who loves people. Again, conviction is the purview of the Spirit. There was a young girl named Katie Francis from Oklahoma. She uh, got this, set the record for the number of boxes of Girl Scout cookies sold. She still holds the record, 22,200 boxes of Girl Scout cookies, breaking all kinds of records. Now, the previous record holder was a gal by the name of Elizabeth Brenton from, you'll love this, right here in Falls Church, Virginia. Somebody asked Elizabeth one time, how did you manage to sell that many cookies to people? She said, it's not really that hard. You just got to look them in the eye and make them feel guilty. <laughs> look, that might work with Girl Scout cookies. It does not work with the gospel because it's not my job, it's not your job. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to bring that conviction. Case in point was Peter. Filled with the Spirit at Pentecost, he ends up speaking to a crowd, right? Most of whom, 40 days earlier, were in the crowd clamoring for Jesus' crucifixion. We're told that while Peter was preaching the gospel to this crowd, the crowd heard the words that he said, and they were cut to the heart. Another translation says they were convicted in their hearts. They weren't convicted or convinced because Peter was like this master sermon maker, right? He was just a fisherman, just coming off of learning this stuff. They were cut to the heart because the Holy Spirit was convicting them and the world of sin. And the result was this. They asked Peter a question. Brother, what must we do? And he said, well, how about you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And that day, 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. So I just want to notice what it says in verses 8 and 9. Notice when it's talking about sin, it's sin singular. It's not the plural sins. It's, it's the world, the Spirit will convict the world of sin point is, is that rather than convicting the world of particular sins, of bad behavior like murder or adultery or stealing, the Spirit's about the business of convicting a person 
of sin, singular, which refers to the sin nature that we all have since Adam got infected with it. And every single human being after that has been born into this world with a sin nature. Sin nature results in individual sins being created, right? And the sin nature we're born with doesn't naturally gravitate to belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died for the sins of the world. But from God's perspective, unbelief is a serious problem because a lack of belief in Jesus is essentially calling God, the Father, a liar because he's the one who sent Jesus to take care of the sin problem. So the world doesn't think unbelief is a problem at all. If you ask most people, do you think your unbelief in Jesus is viewed by God as a sin? Nope. The answer. Do you think murder is a sin? Well, I think murder is bad. It's not a good thing. But a lot of people are reluctant to call it a sin. The world doesn't regard most things as a sin. In fact, many worldly people see unbelief as a badge of honor. You've heard it said, people will say things like this. Well, I'd like to believe like you do, but you know, I just think I'm not so simple-minded as you are. I am a little more intelligent than to fall for that kind of stuff. So they see their unbelief as something to be enshrined, right? They're proud of it. And it's actually really the worst sin of all because that unbelief prevents the forgiveness of all the individual sins that somebody actually produces from their sin nature. By the way, if you happen to live around somebody who's under conviction by the Spirit, you can find that they can get really hostile. They can get really down and dirty. True story. Professional golfer was playing with, uh, on a foursome in a tournament years ago with, get this, Jack Nichols, President Ford, and Billy Graham, who loved to play golf. That was years ago. At the end of the tournament, a reporter asked that professional golfer, hey, man, what was it like playing golf with the president and Billy Graham? Man replied, I don't need Billy Graham to stuff his religion down my throat. Well, then the reporter went over and talked to other people. And what was weird is that he found out that during the golf mat, during the golf playing, Billy Graham never raised the subject of God or religion or the Bible or the gospel, just played golf. But the fact that Billy Graham was there and the fact that the man knew who Billy Graham was and the fact that the man knew what Billy Graham stood for was sufficient to bring that kind of hostility, that kind of conviction to the surface. So one activity of the Holy Spirit is to convince people that they got a need to deal with their sin. Second is to convict the world of righteousness, right? And Jesus says of righteousness in verse 10, because I go to the Father and you see me no more. I'm going to unpack that a little bit for you. Holy Spirit's going to convince people that they're not good enough as they are, that their own righteousness isn't going to cut it before God. Now, the world looks at things through a relative lens, relative righteousness, their own brand of righteousness, Right? Almost like a thermometer, you know. You say, "Well, okay, people in jail who for murder and that kind of stuff, maybe they have a maybe they have a five percent righteousness. I mean, there's still some good stuff in them, but you know, I'll call those they killed people, okay? But they were nice to their dog, and they walked old ladies across the street, so they give give them five percent righteousness. But they're in prison; they did some bad stuff. Uh, maybe some people there are kind of being rehabilitated, so maybe you give them ten percent or fifteen percent. But then there are others who are a little bit better than the convicts, right? We'll ring them up for maybe forty percent. Or maybe there's some people who are really philanthropists. Maybe give them 60%. They'll do all this thing, right? 
eventually they'll say, well, you know, God's at that level where he's, you know, God's 100%, okay? But nobody can really get that. But these same people are kind of banking on this assumption that God grades on the curve. And if you make it like 75% and you, a passing grade, then you, you get into heaven because after all, all dogs go to heaven. Maybe not, right? So the people who see relative righteousness will say this, well, I'm not perfect, not perfect, but, but that's God. I'm not as bad as a whole bunch of other people I see running around me all the time. So their motto of life, really, even if they're very religious, is kind of like the Avis Rindicar motto. We try harder. We try harder. How do you get to heaven? We try harder. I'm going to work at being righteous. I'm going to try to be good. Uh, it's a self-professed righteousness using a grading scale that, sadly, God does not use. Well, what the Holy Spirit does is work to convince the underbeliever, the person, that that's not going to be good enough. That's not going to do the trick. Being more righteous than other people is not enough because here's the reality. When Jesus hit the scene, he preached and presented and demonstrated an entirely different kind of righteousness. In fact, he even said, at his trial, which of you can convict me of sin? You know the answer to that question? Nobody. Nobody. Even the people putting him on trial could not come up with a sin that convict him of. They tried, they couldn't. He preached a sermon on the mount. Lovely sermon. Boy, but there's enough in it to make anyone go, uh-oh. Uh-oh, just a second here. I may not be measuring up here. Then Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And everybody listening to that would have thought, are you kidding me? Are you serious here? <laughs> because the scribes and Pharisees were like the most holy people that these guys knew. They were the best. Unless my righteousness is better than theirs, I don't go to heaven. Amen. It ain't looking good for me. Then in the Sermon on the Mount, towards the end, Jesus delivers the, what I think is the coup de grace. He said this, Therefore, be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, if the scribes and Pharisees didn't convince them that bit, had I heard that, I would have said, okay, it's over for me. For me, there's no hope. I cannot possibly match that standard of righteousness. Perfection, like, like God is perfect. Yeah, we're not going to be able to brag about our righteousness when we're in the presence of the righteous one. Any more than you're going to be able to brag to NASA about, hey, look at the really cool paper airplane that I made. No, they ain't going to cut it, right? NASA's not going to be impressed, right? So it's a spirit's job to convince a person that they're just not good enough on their own. Whatever righteousness you think you have will not cut it before God. Instead, you need, Scripture tells us, the righteousness of Christ. And that only happens one way, through faith in him, which means you're surrendering your life to him. And through that faith in Christ, God simply gifts you the righteousness of Christ. He sees you through the blood of Christ and Christ's righteousness to take care of your sins, and he sees you as sinless. And even though you and I know we're not sinless, God has an amazing ability to see through to see who we are in Christ. So here's the deal. Jesus said of righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no more. What is he talking about? Here's what he's talking about. Jesus dies on the cross for our sin. He rises from the dead 
He ascends into heaven. And when he ascends into heaven, he sits at the right hand of God the Father. It's as if God is saying, the right hand, that's you're, my right hand, your right hand. God says, okay, that righteousness right there, Jesus Christ, that's the righteousness I'm looking for. That's the righteousness I will accept. Here's the standard, utter perfection. This is the righteousness I will allow to be in my presence. We've got to have that kind of righteousness. So the Holy Spirit's job is to convince people that they're sinners, that they're in need of a Savior, and he convinces them that their own righteousness isn't going to cut it. And he convinces them that the righteousness of Christ will cut it, will provide for them enough righteousness that God will accept. And only the Spirit of God can do that. The Spirit of God also convinces the world of judgment. Verse 1, it says, the ruler of this world is judge. So the Holy Spirit's job is to convince people that judgment is real and that they're liable for it. And if they reject God's solution for their sin, if they want to reject the righteousness that God provides through Jesus Christ, then the inevitable consequence is going to be facing the judgment of God. And that's proven to them by what happened to Satan when Jesus died on the cross. Not only died on the cross, but then rose from the dead. When all that happened, Satan tried to throw everything he could at Christ. He thought he was going to be successful, but then Jesus comes out of the grave totally unsuccessful. So Jesus basically took care of Satan's control over mankind. People can escape Satan's grasp by simply faith in Christ. They change dominions. They change kingdoms. And you might wonder whether Satan's fate is, uh, is, is due of doom is kind of really there if you look at the last 2,000 years of human history. You might argue that Satan's done a pretty good job, maybe still is doing a pretty good job, of messing up our world. And that's right. Here's the problem. Like Alex Murdoch, he's not been sentenced yet. He's been condemned, but he's not been sentenced. He's still out there running amok a little bit. But the point is that just as Satan's power was destroyed effectively on the cross, everyone who follows him is going to end up in the same way, facing the judgment of God. And I think it's healthy when a person gets a little worried, a little bit thoughtful about the coming judgment of God. Until he does, people tend to be cavalier about death. Oh, I don't care what happens to me when I die, I'm just going to cease to exist. And if I, don't, if I, if I still exist, I've got a lot of questions. I need to, I'm going to ask God. I've got a lot of questions about that guy. Pretty brazen, really, if you think about it. Like, God is intimidated by some questions from a creature he made out of dust. <laughs> I don't think God's going to be put off. I read about an FBI agent who showed up at his pastor's office one day. He said, look, I've had a lot of guns pointed at my head through the years as, a, as an FBI person, but I've only recently started getting afraid of dying. And I, and, I, and I can't shake the questions about what's going to happen to me after I die. I told the pastor, that, that just sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? I mean, it kind of makes me feel like a pansy. The pastor said, man, that's, that's one of the, most, the best things I've ever heard, the most intelligent things I've ever heard. It might be one of the healthiest things to actually have some concern about what's going to happen after this life is over. And he was able to talk the FBI agent through that, eventually led him to faith in Christ. The pastor noted this, though. He got to be involved. But that guy showed up in his office having already been convinced and convicted by the Holy Spirit. There was something I needed to do, something I needed to understand. Did you know that before the Titanic sank, someone actually wired the ship and warned them that there were huge iceberg masses in the area? 
the operator on the Titanic wired back these words. Shut up, we're busy. Now think of what those words meant for anybody who was on the Titanic that night. Shut up, we're busy. How many people today, you talk to them about God, and you get that kind of response? Shut up, I'm busy. I want to do some other, I'm going to, I'm going to have some fun. I'm going to do what I want to do. Listen, the Holy Spirit has a challenging task. Disciples sure need him. That's undeniable. But the Holy Spirit cares massively for the unbelieving world. And he's active globally to try to convince the world and people in it of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. The last thing I want to talk about is this. The Spirit's game plan is a tad bit unremarkable. See, the Spirit's going to do the work of convicting, convincing people and convicting people, but he's going, to, he's going to employ normal, unremarkable people. You and me. Look at verses 7 and 8. We'll close with this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So get the order. Jesus is going to see to it that the Spirit comes to you and me, to the disciples. After he comes to you and me, then the Spirit's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. In other words, it's the Spirit doing the convicting, but he's going to use us a lot as agents of that. Our words, right? Our actions, human channels. It was always God's plan to have you and me kind of make ourselves available for the Spirit to do this in the conversations, in the actions of love, not only for people in the church, not just for Christians beyond the church, but those in the world who will see and understand the gospel and their need by our words and our deeds, and especially if they're loving deeds. Yeah. Actions and conversations you have at Starbucks, at school, at work, in your neighborhood, on the phone with relatives, in grocery lines, at checkout counters, at Nordstrom's. That's how the Spirit's going to work. If you read the book of Acts, you discover this pretty, pretty quickly. Pretty much every conversation, every person getting saved through faith in Christ is a result of some human, human agent that the Spirit is using to get involved. The Spirit brings the conviction that you and I are to be sort of the tools, the instruments, the voice for it to happen. Now, some of you might be thinking this. Okay, Duane, that sounds pretty good, but... What about Saul of Tarsus? I mean, he was walking on the road to Damascus, get ready to beat up a bunch of Christians, and then Jesus appears to him in a vision. That wasn't a human agent. Well, okay, that's kind of true. He had a vision of Christ. But remember what Jesus said to him when he appeared to him in that vision. Remember what he said? Saul, Saul. It's hard for you to kick against the goat, isn't it? You know what a goat is? It's what you'd use to keep oxen in step if they're doing a grinding wheel or if they're plowing. Little, little, little pinpricks to kind of say, okay, don't go that way, go this way. Keeps them, keeps them in line. But you know, the, these are things that, that kind of prick an animal and it's speaking really about conviction. You know, okay, the animal's going, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go here. Go, the pinprick goes, okay, I'm, I, I better be convicted. I better be back in line. It was Saul of Tarsus who heard Stephen give the speech and the testimony as he was being slaughtered. 
And he listened to Stephen. And he heard Stephen as he watched him die. I'm seeing and hearing this, I think, brought conviction. Listen, Paul probably played that video of Saul, of, of uh, Stephen stoning over and over and over. And I'm sure that the Holy Spirit is prompting him. Look at that man die for his faith in Christ. Look what he believes. What's up with that, Paul? That brought conviction to his heart. Then Jesus comes along in this vision and says, goodness gracious, Paul, pretty tough for you to be kicking against these goats, isn't it? Pretty tough to deal with this conviction that you're experiencing right now, isn't it? Pretty hard to fight that, right? So in all the cases and acts that I can find, we see the Spirit working powerfully, but through normal, everyday people. God has miracles, always has, always will. I've heard of Muslims who actually don't have a, a, a Christian person that they know around, but they just get, become fascinated with Jesus Christ. And I, I've actually talked to them in this church myself. People who have gone to sleep at night, Jesus Christ appears to them, gives them the gospel, they wake up Christians. Then they lead their whole families to Christ. Pretty neat stuff. So lacking a human believer doesn't thwart the Holy Spirit's ability. Just saying that normally, normally, the Spirit loves to use human beings in action to bring the words and actions that he uses to bring conviction. But here's the encouraging thing for us. All these people that gathered around Jesus that he's talking to were largely unremarkable. They were considered hilljacks by the religious leaders. They were normal, but they were nothing special. You look inside the Spirit's toolbox, and sometimes you might find some brilliant person here or there. You might find somebody who's super articulate here and there. You might find somebody who's super talented here or there. But mostly, you just find you and me, us. God says he's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. What's the secret? The secret of the Holy Spirit. Active, within, active, daily, in these encounters that you have through what you say and what you do. Somebody once said, yeah, there's four Gospels, but there's actually five, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and yours. And that author said, you are writing a Gospel, a chapter each day by the things that you do and the words that you say. People hear what you say and they see what you do, and through that they determine what the Gospel is according to your life. Listen, a lot of people are not going to read the Bible. They're not going to pick it up and start reading it, but they're going to read your life. And if the Holy Spirit is in you, and not just in you, but filling you daily, well, all things are possible. If you, if you bump a mug or glass, what comes out? Yeah, whatever is in the mug or glass. If people bump into you in your life, what comes out? Whatever you're filled with. If you're filled with anger, that's going to come out. If you're filled with frustration, that's going to come out. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that will come out. Interestingly enough, it's amazing that that's the way God the Father has fashioned you to function. Let me pray for us, and we'll take communion, I believe. God, it's a challenging message. Kind of nice in some way because we're not really in charge. You seek to be in charge of us. You seek to have us as your workers, as your busy bees out in the world. Wherever there's people, you're there. And if there's Christians, you're there in them. And your goal is to use them and to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and faith in Christ. You love the world. 
how shameful it is sometimes that you love the world more than we do. So we sit idly by as if we don't care. And maybe we don't care. Maybe we need to care about the people, not only in our church, but the people in other churches, but the people in the world that do not know you because their fate is not pleasant. How about we have some love for them as we take communion? Maybe you will stir us. Maybe you will convict us of some things we need to be doing in our neighborhoods because you placed us here in Falls Church in Northern Virginia for a purpose. Help us to live that purpose out that we might see people come to you by faith and experience life to the full. We ask all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.